You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. To learn more about the land you are on, visit native-land.ca. Welcome to Women's Health Interrupted, a women's health research cluster podcast. I'm Rebecca Barron. And I'm Sydney Clips. Through scientific inquiry and storytelling, this podcast brings you content about women's health from many angles. In this week's episode, we will dig into the topic of women's sexual health and physical well-being during the COVID-19 pandemic and discuss the regressive effects the pandemic had on gender equality initiatives. We are excited to be joined today by Dr. Rosemary Morgan, who is an associate scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is a gender, intersectionality, and health systems expert that also leads the sex and age differences in immunity to influenza project. Thank you, Dr. Morgan, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So our first question to you is, what makes you so passionate about creating gender-responsive healthcare systems? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, the, my main area of work is around health systems and integrating gender into health systems. And my COVID-19 related project has very much been a part of that. Uh, let me start with a, a definition, I think, of, of what, what do I consider a gender-responsive health system? Uh, well, a gender-responsive health system is one which really takes into consideration the intersectional needs of men, women, and gender minorities in the development, delivery, and management of health systems. And I mean, and this is across all health systems areas and le- levels, as well as across the life course. So it's thinking about how does gender intersect with age, race, class, you know, and what are the specific needs of different groups within within the health system. And we have to think about the health system as sort of, well, the World Health Organization has this framework, this building blocks framework, and thinking of health systems in relation to service delivery, human resources for health, health information systems, leadership and governance, medical products and technologies, as well as health financing. And all of these are interrelated, but it is important to consider the health system in its entirety. Some people argue as well that the health system is, you know, part at the community level. So the unpaid care and care, community health work and, you know, community health systems. So we're not just talking about hospitals when we're talking about health systems or health centers. Um, And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about creating gender responsive health systems is because we know just from the data that more equitable systems, whether it's racial, gender, any types of equity, the more equitable systems work better for everyone, not, you know, not just, not just women or minority groups, everyone is better off when we have more equitable systems. And um, we need to really understand, like for a health system, the these health systems building blocks that I was talking about, often they think about equity as outcomes. So if we just get all the pieces right, health outcomes will be better and everyone will have equitable health outcomes. However, I'm saying, and my colleagues that work in this area, we're saying, no, we have to think about equity also in terms of inputs, what's going into the system and processes, who's working and engaging in the system. 
and to making sure that it's working for for everybody. Absolutely. And that's so important right now with COVID-19. So how can we make um, these inputs and these equitable systems better amidst this current adversity that we're seeing around the world with the pandemic? So how can we make, well, it's like, it's like, how can we create a gender responsive uh, health system is really the question, isn't it? And, And one, it is identifying where the inequities are, um, recognizing having data, data is so important, you know, data is power, it, it shows us where, uh, what needs to be done, where there's gaps, when we don't have data, things are made invisible. Um, there's often there's reasons that sometimes we don't have data, it's for value based reasons, politics, why, why do some certain things get researched and others get completely left off the agenda. So, you know, data is so important, sex desegregated data, gender analysis, finding out where those inequities are. So then we can build these systems that really do work for everyone. So not only service users, but healthcare workers, those in leadership positions. And, and it really does go at the policy level. That's one of it. We need policy and guidance and uh, documents that really, really have this as their ethos that they really build in equity but then we can't it's not not enough just to have policy you need to implement that policy and so for an example we've seen in the pandemic that women are disproportionately represented in caregiving positions such as long-term care workers nurses child care workers and so on and so many of these women are of traditionally marginalized and racialized backgrounds and how have we seen these ramifications play out in terms of who's allowed to shelter at home during the pandemic and who's been experiencing the brunt of the pandemic great question and you know, women are disproportionately represented in caregiving positions. And we see that both in the formal health workforce and the more informal, you know, the, the health workforce is made up of 75 to 80% women, depending on where you are, you know, and that's a huge proportion. And you're right that some, some of the more caregiving professions like long-term care workers, nurses, child care workers are predominantly women. And you're also right that a large proportion of them are minority women. And that, it, that is important. And it also, it goes back to questions around when, you know, when the pandemic hit, who has the resources and networks and capacity to be able to stay at home or even consider staying at home? You know, do they, who has the financial resources to be able to do so? Who has to go to back, go to work at risk of themselves and their families because they need to, to support themselves and their families? You know, and resources also include childcare. Who has access to childcare? Who has young children at home? who has broader existing networks. And, you know, we need to think about, I think both, you know, thinking about the brunt of the pandemic, you know, who thinking about both physical and mental health burden this places on women, this sort of dual responsibility of having to continue to work, often not being like financially insecure and having to do these precarious positions uh, and, and continue to go into work. And as I mentioned before, we really do need policies in place to support these women. And if you're looking at healthcare workers and other types of workers, whether it's childcare, you know, we need things like pandemic pay, sick leave, um, ability to go and, and get tested. And one example in, the, in British Columbia, which I find it really interesting, is re- related to midwives. So mid- midwives in British Columbia are 100% women, but they're not considered 
is this kind of the same on the same level or same position as nurses and doctors. So they didn't actually have access to pandemic pay or sick leave um, during during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's still going on today. Um, but despite their vital role in the demand for home births. So, you know, we really if, if we value this type of work, we, we recognize that the substantial work that women are doing, we need to back it up with policies that support them and also that says, look, we, we, we don't want you to put yourself and families, families at risk. I absolutely agree with that. I think there's this lack of infrastructure and policies that are really supporting women throughout this pandemic. And it's something that we really need to start to fix and really get a better grasp on. So maybe in terms of considering some of um, the long-term effects of the pandemic on women, um, so what could our current healthcare system do in order to better set up this infrastructure and better set up these support systems? There's a lot that our current health system could do. You know, we have to think about the fact that what is this, what's the pandemic going to do to women, especially in, the, in these particular present positions in these essential care roles? And we do know, and data is suggesting that, you know, the healthcare worker or caregiver work burden or burnout is real. A lot of women are experienced as men too are experiencing this. And like we see this in nursing and midwifery in particular, I'm sure in long-term care facilities, but maybe childcare. And what does that mean for women leaving the workforce, right? Um, is that what does that mean not only for potential shortages of healthcare workers and care workers in the future, especially in British Columbia and beyond and the rest of Canada? What does that mean for gender equality? So, you know, if women are leaving the workforce, we, we already know that women have the, the short end of the stick in terms of gender pay gap, um, in terms of promotions. If you're looking at representation as you go up in different levels, women drop off. You, you know, I mentioned before that. 70 to 85% of healthcare workers are women, but only 25% of healthcare leadership is women. And that's very disproportionate. So if you've got women leaving the workforce, what does that mean for their promotions? What does that mean for them when they want to re-enter the workforce? How many years have they lost? How much further are they going to be behind? What does that mean for the pay gap? So there's questions around gender equality, um, but that that also like maps onto what does that mean for the, the quality of the services we can provide? What if there, if we have shortages of healthcare workers, particularly, um, other things of um, think, other things that the health system can do. We need to think about some of those, as you mentioned, the long-term effects of the pandemic that aren't necessarily like immediate. You know, the, we call them more the secondary impacts, and things around caregiving is one of them. Mental health is another. Lack of maybe potential lack of access to education. But if you there's other health-related impacts that we must consider. And they're related to women delaying healthcare seeking during the pandemic. So they might not be going into their, for their regular sexual reproductive health checkups like, um, or regular screenings like pap smears and, and breast screening, you know, for screening for breast cancer, mammograms. Um, they, they're, women are delaying that. We know. What does this mean for the incidence, potential incidence of cancers later on? I actually, it would be interesting to follow the data because I think we are going to see an increase um, things around lack of access to abortion as well. What is what are the implications of that? What about access to contraceptive services, right? So the health system needs to, to say, look, there, we need to consider all of these different 
impacts that the pandemic has on women, some health-related, not health-related, but all interrelated. And we need systems and policies in place to address, to address these and to ensure that women aren't in a worse off position than, than when they were before the pandemic. And let's face it, women weren't in a great position before the pandemic even happened. And now they're even, even in a much worse position. Absolutely. Thank you for highlighting these compounded intersections and, and how, um, unless we, we are really stepping in here, they're going to continue to play out and, and worsen those as well. Um, shifting gears a little bit into um, the more science side, I think that there is a real lack, at least um, in culture and, and media around how women are being affected by long haul COVID-19. And of course, this is so new, but just curious if you had any insights to share around that. Yeah, I don't know a lot about how women are being infect, uh, affected by long haul COVID. I mean, what I think when I hear things like that, similar to, to things like women experiencing more adverse reactions to the COVID-19 vaccine, I my my question is, where's the research that's really looking at this and why or why don't we have research looking at this or are is research not adequately integrating a sex and gender lens disaggregating data by sex and if women are experiencing more long-haul covid why might that be what are the gen bi biological and social reasons uh, because we know that sex and gender intersect right um what are the reasons that that might be and how might we minimize that, but then also how can we care, care for women and make sure that the care is in place that they need. Absolutely. And we also know with the Johnsons and Johnsons, I think it was temporarily paused due to side effects that we're seeing of blood clotting in female patients. So how can we better inform the public about these, you know, these disparities in symptoms? And then how can we also improve research on these gaps in vaccine trials that we're seeing? Sure. So one thing that's important to remember that most of the side effects that we saw from or are seeing from the COVID-19 vaccines are very minor, right, and short-lived, right? So the blood clots were very minimal, right, um, compared to your chances, one in six million, you know, very small compared to others. We are seeing more women reporting increased side effects. We say it's similar with the influenza vaccine and other vaccines. So this, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. We do, one thing that is always important to ask that are, is there reporting bias? Is what's the likelihood of men versus women reporting these side effects? But still the data backs up that, that we've got these biological differences. You know, women and men's biology is different. Women have more robust immune systems. Uh, we know some of this, uh, but despite kind of all of this, there is real lack of sort of sex and gender research that, that explores some of these things. Like with the, with the adverse reaction data, you know, if you look with the COVID-19, especially from the clinical trials, they did not disaggregate their data by sex. So they said, okay, we've got these different types of adverse reactions. There's, there's local versus systemic. So local reactions are more around swelling and pain and redness, whereas systemic is more like flu-like symptoms, aching, all short-lived, quite minor. Um, and they, so they aggregated, but they didn't disaggregate. But then when, when, when we, people were going out after the trials, getting the vaccines, much more women were reporting these, right? And it's like, okay, we need to know why, why didn't you ask? And then, then later on, you probably saw in the media, oh, 
women are reporting changes to their menstrual cycle. Oh, women are reporting enlarged lymph nodes in the breast area, which could look like breast cancer. And probably most likely, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty, but I could guess that the, the clinical trials didn't even include questions on that. And that is a gender data gap, right? So the fact that we're treating men and women the same, like their experience is going to be the same is wrong. We need to have this sex and gender lens. We need sort of sex specific, gender specific questions, even for men, I'm, you know, it's not just women. Like, yes, there's going to be reactions that everyone experiences, but there might be some that are specific to men, specific to women, or specific to gender minorities as well. And we need to consider, consider that. So not only do we need women in clinical trials, we need to make sure and ensure that data is disaggregated, not just by sex, but also race, also age, so important, looking at the intersections. And, you know, we need to ensure that that disaggregation is kept throughout but then we also need the gender lens to making sure we're asking the right questions. Because remember I said before, data is power. And that if you're not asking the right questions, you're making something invisible, right? And we're invisible, invisibilizing. I actually think that's a word. I didn't think it the first time I saw it, but invisibilizing like particular groups or people's experiences by not having the right questions and the right data. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you've alluded that they do go hand in hand, particularly in terms of ramifications. But given that our world is so focused on researching and coping with COVID-19, how do we make sure that we don't lose this focus or momentum on promoting and achieving gender equity within healthcare beyond whatever this period, whatever this extension of time is? Sure. Um, that's a good question. And I don't know if there's like a real easy answer to that. Um, the one thing that COVID-19 has done is it has brought attention to sex and gender like we've never seen it before, right? And I do think, you know, a lot of that is we're seeing clear differences between men and women, especially around mortality. More men are suffering from severe consequences and, and um, the mortality is higher among men in some countries. But, you know, at the aggregate level, we see some of these, these patterns. So we have this increased attention to sex and gender, right, uh, that it is important, it's, it's making, it's causing a difference. Um, I think that's going to, we need to keep that momentum going. We need to make sure we have the right advocacy that we're having the, these data collection, you know, data collection and analyses happening that we're reporting on these findings. With, with gender inequality, the interesting thing is you often see two arguments being made about why it's important, why do we need this? One is like more an instrumental argument, whereas the other is more normative. And by, by those, I mean, you know, a normative argument is one that suggests or argues for something because it's the right thing to do. Gender inequality is bad, so we must address it. So it, it's the right thing that men and women have equality, right? Whereas more instrumental arguments are more applied in nature and like often look at the effects of inequality on specific things, often like with in relation to money, the bottom line, you know, so these often attach dollars that we need to address gender inequality because it's hurting our pockets. Like it's, it's hurting the gross domestic product in a country. And if we address gender equality, we address, we can increase our GDP. And those arguments can be really compelling. You know, I personally, I prefer normative approaches. I don't think that we should be arguing for gender equality for financial reasons. That's not the reason, but I'm also pragmatic. And that no, until we, we don't disrupt the current systems and structures in which we are operating, 
you know, we need to make arguments that will convince decision makers who are predominantly men, you know, that arguments that they will understand and that they will accept. And sometimes those, we need, those money arguments or other instrumentalist type of arguments work. Um, but I think we also need to argue that gender equality benefits everyone. Equality benefits everyone. Everyone is better off, not just women, right? So where, you know, we need to understand how gender affects men, women, and gender more gender minorities differently. How can we address that? And that by addressing that, everyone is happier. Like, there's data really to suggest that. And we need to keep, keep making those arguments that, look, it's not just for women, it's for everybody. I love that. I love equality benefits everyone. I think that is so true on so many levels. Um, so in terms of uh, resources, so what resources would you suggest to women who are trying to make more informed decisions around COVID-19 and really just want to educate themselves about um, helping to create these more responsive, equitable healthcare systems? Well, oh, what particular resources? Well, I, there is a website called Global Health 5050, which is providing uh, sex desegregated data related to COVID-19. And it's tracking the data global at the global level, which is uh, quite, you know, quite interesting. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of gaps in that data, but we can start to see where some of these patterns might be, might lie. I think it's also, you know, not just about educating ourselves, but demanding the need for this type of research that, you know, and, and asking, asking for how might this affect me differently as, as a woman who has a different body type. And, and you know, I, I also know in Canada is one of the lead is on the world globally is one of the leaders in sex and gender based analyses. The Canadian Institute for Health Research is really kind of leading leading on that. They've got some courses online that people can take around sex and gender and sex and gender analysis, you know, and those are more broadly not specifically related to COVID, but it, it is helpful to understand you know, the sex and gender dimensions of health and disease more broadly and looking at the, the Canadian Institute for Health Research, there's a center for gender and health specifically that's really leading that way by Kara Tannenbaum in Canada. So Canada is really, is one of, some of the leaders in sex and gender-based analysis. I'm just curious for you, you know, you've spent so much time and, and, and research and um, effort, particularly in all of these like international working groups that you're doing and um, just curious for you, what's it all for? Mm. Yeah, the international, the gender and COVID-19 working group has been a really great initiative. Um, one, I am very much in support of collaborative work. I think we do better when we collaborate, when we bring resources and minds and experience and expertise together, as opposed to like fighting for those, those same things. And the Gender and COVID-19 Working Group, it's quite an informal group. It's a Google group. It has over 600, close to 700 people now. It's been going for about a year um, and we meet monthly, but we have lots of conversations on the Google group. It's just been an excellent way to bring like-minded people or people working in this space together from multiple disciplines, from academia, from civil society, from even the private sector, government, Right? So it's a way for us to collaborate and, and like never before. And to me, if that's all that I get out of it, that's, that's enough. That's enough. Um, but there's been so much more that's come out of it, like co different collaborations of, of people, people connecting like they haven't. And, 
you know, we've needed to collect, connect so much more this last year than we're all sitting at home in front of our computers. That connection is so important. And this has been a way to do that. And it's also a way to help us amplify the message, right? So we're not all shouting from different rooftops, different, different, slightly similar, but different messages to different people. How can we come together to amplify the same message to look, note, look at the data, to advocate for the work that needs to be done? And the, the more we, the people we bring together, I think the better off that we are. Wonderful. Dr. Morgan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. And um, please take good care. Thank you. You too. got a few new synapses firing for you be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to hear our episodes when they drop every second wednesday each month get in touch with us we welcome any questions and constructive feedback you can email us at womenshealth.interrupted at ubc.ca or find us on twitter at research on wh or on instagram at whr cluster to learn more about this topic, check out our show notes at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. We would like to thank the Michael Smith Foundation, BioTalent Canada, Patreon, and the UBC Global Lounge for their generous support of this project. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network and its wonderful staff for hosting our podcast. And a special thank you to Catherine Moore, who manages the Women's Health Research Cluster for all of her work in the development of this initiative. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful day or evening wherever you are, and please take care of yourselves. Wishing you good health. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 